Before we get started on this episode, I wanted to take a minute to remember Charlie Watts, the drummer of the Rolling Stones, who passed away on August 24th, 2021. You see, the Rolling Stones have been my favorite band since I saw them in concert in 1989. In the days of huge drum kits, Charlie's was four drums and a handful of cymbals. Charlie believed it was his job to keep the beat, nothing else. He was quiet, reserved, and the apparent antithesis of a rock star. That said, my favorite Charlie story was told in Keith Richards' autobiography, Life. Quote, We got back to the hotel about five in the morning and Mick called up Charlie. I said, don't call him, not at this hour. But he did and said, where's my drummer? No answer. About 20 minutes later, there was a knock at the door. There was Charlie Watts, Seville Rose suit, perfectly dressed, tie, shaved, the whole f***ing bit. I could smell the cologne. I opened the door and he didn't even look at me. He walked straight past me, got a hold of Mick and said, never call me your drummer again. Then he hauled him up by the lapels and gave him a right hook. Keep the beat, Charlie, and thanks. Hello and welcome to episode two of season three of This Won't Teach You Anything. Uh, glad to see you here two weeks after the episode one of season three. Uh, today I've got uh, guest Sean Kennedy, frequent guest, and a good buddy of mine from high school, Jason Lipscomb. Jason, how are you? I'm doing great. Thanks for having yeah, me. Yeah, no, thanks for thanks for coming down. Uh, you know, with before we get into the meat of the show, which incidentally in this uh, episode is going to be 1980s The Blues Brothers. The classic. The classic. Incidentally, the first uh, first film to come out of a Saturday Night Live sketch. It's The Blues Brothers. So uh, way back in 1980. Before we get into that, what's uh, Sean, uh, we got together a couple weeks ago, did the uh, uh, mm-hmm. comic, comic and comic slash hero uh, Movies. edition. Yeah. What have you been up to? I have been doing nothing but working. Yeah, that's That's been... Man, that's my life. And, you know, all you out here who might be listening in your 20s or something like that, yeah, look forward to it once you hit 40 because that's all your life is. <laughs> <laughs> so with Sean's ray of sunshine wisdom, Jason, what have you been up to? Well, I, too, have been working, fortunately. It's, it's good to be working in this economy and such. Uh, I'm down in Lafayette, Indiana. Okay. So uh, we're excited about uh, I uh, enjoy a college town, and we're going to be able to have football back there. And, yep. Uh, and for those who are listening, don't know what's in West Lafayette, what school, what uh, school are we talking great about? Great Purdue University. Purdue University. Fantastic. Uh, one of the finest uh, engineering schools. Agree. In, in the country. Absolutely. Um, lot of, a uh, lot of uh, great um, scientists. Right. Astronauts. Astronauts. Neil Armstrong. Buzz Aldrin. Drew Brees. <laughs> Drew Brees. Yep. <laughs> I was I was lucky enough to Jay was going to school down there in Purdue while he was playing. And mm-hmm. I was over at Ball State. I was lucky enough to be able to come over and watch him play every now and then on Saturdays. It was fantastic. Yeah, I remember being at Ross Age Stadium. A buddy of mine uh went to uh Purdue and I would go down there for a foot uh football game a year and, and they would play Michigan one year at home. Mm-hmm. And on the year that they didn't play Michigan at home, they'd play Notre Dame at home. Mm-hmm. So those would be the games I'd go down for. And I remember almost getting tossed out 
um, uh, right before the game started, he and I for uh, heckling Michigan quarterback Elvis Gerback nice. on the sidelines. And yeah, they, they told us to move along or they'd move us along. So we, we <laughs> moved along, but those were back in the days, Jay, I don't know if you remember um, uh, when the student section would throw cups. Oh yes. The, the souvenir cups. Uh-huh. Well, at one of those games, it was the cops got called in because the student section kind of divided and it just became the game is going on, and there's this huge tossing of everything eventually in the student section. It's just like the parting of the Red Sea, and everybody's throwing cups and full cups, right. and it just it devolved. It, yes, it did. <laughs> it did. But um, so yeah, those are my those are my big memories down there at West Lafayette, Indiana. And uh, so you excited about the football team? They, they're going to have something going on. I, I think so. I, what I enjoy probably even more than the football is just the atmosphere. There's nothing yeah. like Big Ten football, and I'll. A bicycle down there. Unless and, we have uh, any tailgates and any listeners from the SEC. True. I, okay. <laughs> well, you talk about the SEC, and though that's that's a different breed. That's a different animal and now. a different podcast. Yeah. The, you know, they, <laughs> the, you, you start talking about football in the SEC, and people start you know bringing out knives and things like that. They're very serious or sticks. <laughs> yeah. Um. So yeah, no good. Uh, I'm glad to have you guys here. Um. I know you guys have uh, probably listened to uh, the podcast more than I have because I. Confession, I've never listened to one after I've edited it. It's kind of, I've never understood that when actors say, I don't watch any of my own movies. You know, I always thought they were full of it, but I really don't want to hear what I'm doing on here. Why? Do you think I, I don't know. I cringeworthy? Just, you know how your voice sounds different right? Yes. when you listen to it? Yeah. You know, and I, I don't like the way my voice sounds. Like, I I'm, I hear it in my head and then I hear it back and I'm like, do I really sound like that? Yeah, I don't like the way your voice sounds either. Thank you. <laughs> get, get out. The Blues Brothers, 1980. The Blues Brothers as a sketch on Saturday Night Live, where they were born. Mm. Brainchild Dan Aykroyd, primarily. Mm-hmm. Good Big friends with John fan. Belushi. Yep. Yeah. yeah, Dan Aykroyd, huge blues fan. 1978, the Blues Brothers premiere on Saturday Night Live. They do a musical sketch performance, and uh, it, it kind of it bursts something from there. I mean, they've they've been around in... All kinds of incarnations. Um, you know, you have uh, the Saturday Night Live, you have the film, The Blues Brothers, and then um, in between that and after a touring, mm-hmm. uh, you know, uh, yeah. version, you know, yeah. where they go out on the road and they actually did shows and whatnot. They released like for, uh, at least two albums. Yeah. Know. Two to three. Yeah. yeah. Three. Yeah. So, um, you know, that's that's one of those things that, uh, that just doesn't happen, you know, anymore. I mean, I'd argue it's probably... For me, it's my favorite movie that was born of Saturday Night Live. Oh, yeah. Well, there's nothing like the original cast of Saturday Night Live. And I think they started with the B band, didn't they? Around uh, I'm a King 76. B. I'm a King B, as John Belushi was, was singing. And that was a lot of the original <laughs> band members, I believe. Uh, it was Steve Cropper. Blues Brothers years. Yes. But Donald still, Dunn. Uh, kind of the same feel. That was a blues band. Yeah. Right. Yeah. The... Uh, yeah. And I, I would think that you can probably find a lot of this stuff on YouTube. You know, if you're, if you're younger and you're like, you know, well, who the hell are the blues brothers? Uh, because that, that's it, you know, with, with people our age is everybody you know, knows that. Yeah. Until you run into, you know, people, our kids age and they're like, who is this? Yeah. Right. 
you know, some of them. My kids know who they are because yeah. I've I've played that movie repeatedly. So mine, know. mine as well. And I think if you begin to research it a little bit, if you're not familiar with it, and, and you get in and you realize that this goes well beyond the movie, these were legitimate musicians, mm-hmm. incredible musicians, the best in, in the industry. Yeah, I mean, they, very talented. Yeah, they've played with. Um, you know, Steve Proper played with a ton of people, mm-hmm. a, a guitarist and, and, um, all of these guys, you know, the m- musical director on a lot of the road shows, Paul Schaefer Correct. was, uh, David Letterman's house Correct. band leader Correct. forever. Yep. So, I mean, yeah, like you said, these, these weren't just actors, you know, playing some music. These guys were all established. Blue Lou Marini, saxophonist, mm-hmm. uh, Tom Bones Malone on trombone, Matt mm-hmm. Guitar Murphy, uh, you know, there, it, the list just goes on and on. Uh, who's who of these um, uh, uh, big time, like recording musicians? Yeah, uh, at, at the time, Workers. And, yeah. Um, and you know, Dan Aykroyd really tapped into that to go ahead and, and make it, you know, an authentic blues review. Mm-hmm. So, um, I, you know, and I think for for people who, for me, there was a time when that original cast of of SNL you know, was really firing on a lot of creative cylinders. Yeah. I mean, you know, and, and I mean, there's still people paying off on that in this Thanksgiving in, in 2021, we're going to have the return of, of Dan Aykroyd and Bill Murray yeah. in the next uh, Ghostbusters film. Really looking yeah. forward to that. So, you know, that, that uh, second trailer for Ghostbusters Afterlife just hit and it's got a little stinger with Dan Aykroyd right at the last, uh, the last scene of that trailer. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, these guys, you know, have cut their teeth on, on, you name it. A lot of these guys have done it and it's just not something you see, um, these days for my money on, on Saturday night live. I mean, there's, mm-hmm. no. you know, there's been a lot of people that have come out there's over a the formula. years. Yeah, there is. And I mean, you're going to get one or two, but these guys that came out of the first few seasons were all at a time household names and, and still people know of, of our age, know who they were. Mm-hmm. You know, um, and almost all of them went on to do various other things and yeah. were all successful in it. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, for, for me to say that the blues brothers was the, the, for me, the best film to come out of Saturday Night Live since it was so early on in the inception of the show really speaks to, you know, how long that show's been on and how many movies have been made. You know, you have Wayne's world, you have, um, uh, night at the Roxbury, you've got all these, all these films that have come out born of that and it's just you know not many of them hit no you know trying, it's like trying, trying to, yeah go ahead i was just gonna say trying to replicate that success or, or the take, blues brothers. take a four minute sketch and turn it into something else you yeah. know and it, you know um in the movie the blues brothers john landis a director who co-wrote it with dan Aykroyd, uh they really you know fleshed out these characters as to who they were you know um and, and that's part of it you know you can't just go in there and try and stretch three minutes into two hours yeah you know, so they, they gave them a whole mythos of of what this movie was going to be about, what their backgrounds were. They were orphans and, um, you know, gave them this mission from God as as it came to be known in the film. But, you know, before we get too far into that, we, we've we established that Dan Aykroyd and uh, was kind of the driving force with it. it one of his best friends, John Belushi, um, came along where um, – Aykroyd was probably the more behind the scenes uh, creative force behind the blues brothers. You know, it's, it's, it's John Belushi on stage yeah. and you know, the, the presence of that character that's just front and center yeah. for the most part where, where um, Dan Aykroyd's Elwood blues is more the, the straight 
man kind of in the background on a lot of stuff, you know, whether it be the, uh, the harmonica playing mm-hmm. vocals, which Ackroyd's a, a pretty good harmonica player, harp player, as he would say, it just, it just came at a time where everything kind of clicked and worked as, as you, if you listen to any of their, their blues albums, which you can find streaming, um, if you can find them on vinyl, it's better to listen that way. You'll hear an intro that uh, Elwood Blues gives where he's talking about um, it's 1979 going on 1980 Mm -hmm. and the music known as the blues will soon only exist in the what the local library or something like that, you know, with all the pre-programmed electronic disco that's coming out Mm -hmm. these days. So, you know, anybody who hasn't taken the time to listen to any uh, blues music, which I'd argue that, uh, is Jazz, yeah. I mean, are, are are truly American art forms. Yeah, you know, yes. there's a lot of influence throughout music, throughout history, but it would be hard pressed to find something more authentically American than the blues. Yeah, agree. And Landis, uh, when they were developing the movie, as I understand, it was under a lot of pressure by the studio because disco was popular back then. Is to integrate that in, they were worried. Well, if you you bring these older musicians, these Ray Charles and Aretha Franklin's, and nobody's going to be able to relate. Let's let's do kind of the modern, popular. And he said, no, no, this is about the traditional mm-hmm. blues. Mm-hmm. And he was right. He really nailed it. Yeah, absolutely. That's, that's what happened with that sequel that they tried to pull off. They, some some producer got a hold of it, trying to cash in for money. We won't Just, talk about that here. <laughs> that didn't technically happen. We don't we don't acknowledge there that. there is a there is a blues jam. On that uh, that soundtrack, though, that is worth a listen. It's with BB uh, King and um, I believe Wilson Pickett's on it. Um, uh, I'll have to look it up and add it at the end of this. But uh, anything it, with BB King's worth a listen. I saw BB King twice. I saw him at the embassy. Yeah, I saw him at the embassy two times. Several times. Did you go down and get his, his little pin? I didn't get the pin. I did. Yeah, yeah. yeah. One well, of the times yeah. I did. Oh yeah. No. I'd like to go down because he was he was cool. He'd sit there and shake hands with everybody, and if you wanted to, you'd go backstage at his bus and meet him and shake his hand. Yeah, yeah. He was really just a, a nice guy. And he like. played and performed well into his eighties. Yeah, I think, I think he was that age, and he was performing more than anybody out there. And there's a man that just loves to play. Yeah, I saw a video of him playing, and he snapped a string while he was playing, and while he's playing a roadie comes out and starts stringing up his guitar with this string that he's bought while he's playing. But I bet if you listen to the music, you couldn't tell there was no. a string missing off old Lucille. No. no, he just kept going and, you know, got the guy got it all tightened up and hit it, hit a couple notes and tune it. And then he just kept going right? Was a consummate professional. Mm-hmm. Unbelievable. Yeah, no, he was. And one of those guitars that, that, you know, as it, soon as you hear it, it the, the very distinct sound. Mm-hmm. So again, that was Blues Brothers 2000 that, that featured a lot of those. The BB King was featured in Blues Brothers 2000, which, you know, was, um, it, it sorry, I brought it up. Yeah. Well, <laughs> you know, I mean, it's the evolution and it just, it, it didn't work for me. You know I mean? You, you just can't go ahead and, and replicate that lightning in a bottle. I haven't even watched. No, it. I haven't watched yeah. it. I won't. I, I looked at the ad and I was like, nope. Yeah. I can't, I, I couldn't see any of that. So. Back to uh, 1980s version of the Blues Brothers, and you, you brought up uh, uh, what the studios wanted to do, which isn't uncommon no. in many of these things. You know, the studio executives thinking they know what's best and trying to trying to uh, uh, force a creative direction. <laughs> they've got their finger on the pulse. Right, right. <laughs> you know, they've got the money. They think this needs to happen. And sometimes, you know, uh, directors who are, are just starting out, 
And sometimes veteran directors, you know, they, they lose in that situation. You see it more these days where directors leave or they're doing their own cuts of movies uh, after the fact. Yeah. They were just talking about that on, uh, I can't remember what I was watching. They were talking about back to the future. Remember that? Mm-hmm. Uh, they were fighting the studio because somebody at the studio wanted to name it uh, Spaceman from Pluto. Awesome. And they were like, what, what are you talking about? And this guy sank his teeth in and just wouldn't let it go. Yeah. You can just imagine it wouldn't have been the same. It wouldn't have the same carry on success that it's, that it has these days. Same legs. Um, with, with the blues brothers, I think the first time I specifically saw this film was came out in 1980. It would have been probably 1984, 85 when I first saw it. And it would have been on, um, catching on TV, uh, here in, uh, Indiana, up here in Fort Wayne, we got, um, channel 55, channel 55. But the one I remember it was channel nine out of Chicago. Oh yeah. And, you know, and if you know anything about the film, it's primarily set in Chicago. Um, it's, it's kind of a road trip movie, but it, it spends a lot of time in Chicago with Chicago influences. Um, so that's when I first saw it. And, you know, the biggest draw to me, I, I enjoyed the music and whatnot, but being 10 or 11 years old, it was a, uh, it was a big scene later in the movie that we'll get to. And in the, in the, we'll talk about that. But do you guys remember when you first saw this film? I was actually thinking about that on the way up. And I, I remember, I'm just a little bit younger than you guys, but I remember watching things with my father, Barney Miller and he Haw and mm-hmm. those kind of things. And I was kind of into anything that made him laugh. Mm-hmm. So I'm sure I saw it at that age, but I think I first watched it when we were in high school ah. and that's where I really got the bug. Yeah. Sean, I don't remember when I, that was one of those movies that was, uh, in rotation all the time on like channel 55. You had the Sunday movies and they would be the blues brothers and young Frankenstein and the outlaw Josie. Wales. So you might've seen this over the period of three or four watchings. Yeah. And I, I don't remember exactly when or where it started to stick with me, but I remember uh, I, I, I started taking music seriously when I was a freshman okay. in high school. I'd, I had been involved in orchestra since I was a kid. I'd played violin, and, but still nothing really, nothing, nothing was a big deal to me about mm-hmm. music until I went and saw... Uh, Poison? No. No, no, that, that was, uh, no, this was after poison, <laughs> uh, you know, cause I was just in that, that was, that was where I was at. I was in this, you know, kind of just pop music, right. you know, yeah. it's just some background noise, but I saw a uh, full metal jacket and mm. at the end of full metal jacket, they played of course, paint it black. Yep. And I had never heard anything like it. And I sat and listened and watched the entire credits so I could see who it was. And then I saw it was the Rolling Stones and I was like, my dad's into old stuff. I'm sure he's got some of that. <laughs> so I went through my dad's collection and he had, he had one Rolling Stones album. He had tattoo you. <laughs> You're not going to find painted black on that. No, but he had a lot of other stuff. He had a lot of Jimi Hendrix. He had mom had the doors, a lot of cream, Creedence Clearwater, um, stuff like that. And that's, that's when I started actually sitting down and focusing and listening to music and letting that branch out. And that, that was kind of the beginning for me because started listening to that and then started looking up stuff and listening to old interviews with people and all these other musicians like Eric Clapton or Jimi Hendrix or other people would start talking about the music that they started growing up with. 
and the music that influenced them, which was the blues. And that just kind of dovetailed into the blues of blues brothers always being in rotation and all these old songs that you'd hear playing on there and Aretha Franklin and Johnny Lee hooker with boom, boom, boom mm-hmm. and stuff like that. So I don't, I don't have a, I don't have a time. I, I, I can't think of a time when the blues brothers wasn't around. Right. You right. Know? Yeah. I mean, uh, you know, especially there still is, you see it and, and you appreciate it. But at the time, you know, that late eighties, uh, through the nineties, through up until recent times. And like I said, it's not as much because I think of the, a lot of the crowd is getting older, Yeah, but you knew, right. What the, uh, you know, the, the black, the black small fedoras, the sunglasses, uh, the Wayfarer sunglasses, and the, um, the black and white suits. Yeah, you know, you know, it was signified by by that, and it's something so simple, right? You know, mm-hmm. black suit, white shirt, black tie, sunglasses, and a hat. Yep. But it became synonymous with uh, with the Blues Brothers, and so you you just knew what that was. So, you know, I, um, the movie was rated R. And it was primarily for the language yeah. mm-hmm. is what it was. Um, you know, fast forward a few years into, uh, it would have been, uh, 1991, 1990, I think our, uh, our, uh, band director in high school, Mr. Mm-hmm. Streeter mm-hmm. doc, um, uh, for the marching band, which I think we were all a part of at the time. I wasn't, I was, I was friends with you guys. You guys were all in it and. Yeah, you can't. You came to me and you were like, "Hey, somebody, they're looking for a guitar player." Right, right. So and you didn't like, march. The, you were on sideline. Marching band, what? Right. But I was like, "Yeah, I'll do it. Whatever." Right. So we were in that, and our band was not huge. I mean, in Fort Wayne, Indiana, uh, you've got I don't know how many high schools are well, there. Five, five, five right now. Correct, and that's uh, not counting the county high schools. Right, right. So you get in there, you've got probably eight high schools in in the immediate area mm-hmm. that are fifteen, twenty minutes away. From, you know, central, you go downtown and drive 15 minutes into any direction and you can find eight different high schools. Yeah. You know, Fort Wayne at the time, 250,000 people, maybe something like that. Yeah. So, um, you know, not this, not this huge scale metropolis, but, uh, we went to a school called, uh, Southside high school and it was, you know, I mean, within walking distance of downtown, what, what would be considered an inner city school, and so, um, you know, our, the, the band in the eighties was a sizable band. Mm-hmm. Uh, the marching band was, a uh, uh, you know, one of the bigger city bands. By the time we got there, I think my freshman year, it was the biggest it was while I was there for four years and it was a decent sized band. Probably 80 or 90 though, right? Yeah. It would have been 88, okay. eight, yeah, 88, 89. And then I didn't actually join it until the next year. I did road roadie work the first year. And, um, so I joined at your freshman year, Jason mm-hmm. for the and, James Bond show. Yeah. Yeah. So that's, you know, our, our band director, um, you know, big jazz, uh, right. Big Played time with James Brown. Yeah. Big time jazz musician, uh, soul, uh, type of thing. So at, at that point it was, you know, with a band this size, you, you were graded, uh, or you were, you were classified by the, the high school size. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, so if you're, if you went to a big high school, you were going to compete against other high schools that were, were that big, a four, a, 4A, I think is where we were at the time, a four, a high school. And so if your band was 200 people in four, a, 
great. If your band was 50 people Not in so 4A, yeah, <laughs> yeah, you know, because you were going to go up against schools. Uh, one that comes to mind is Homestead, was kind of the big dog. Yeah, mm-hmm. or even Northside you know, back in the day. Right, Northrop had a big mm-hmm. band. Oh, yeah. um, but, you know, the, kind of the, the premier textbook band at the time was um, Homestead. Yeah. And it still continues to be. I mean, the, the focus on there, and they do more traditional type shows. Them and Homestead, yeah. So um, our band director, director knew that we weren't going to go ahead and be able to compete on that technical level with those bigger bands. So he decided we were going to have fun. We were going to play stuff that people recognized. As Jason said, it was um, his first year and my first year, too, in the band was a James Bond show. So it was mm. themes from James Bond movies and whatnot. And so it was a fun show. You know, people in the stands recognize the music. A lot of times with these big uh, productions in there, you don't always recognize the music that you're hearing. It's, mm-hmm. you know, but that's what we did. Well, it was the next year. It would have been your sophomore year. Would have been my uh, junior year. Mm-hmm. Would have been the Blues Brothers show. Mm. That was our senior year. Senior year, I thought, was that American. No, it was our senior year. The 1991 Marching Blues Band. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right. I stand corrected. Sorry. No, that's good. Um well, wait a minute. 91. Would that have been in? Yeah, 91, 92. Yeah, 92, 92. 92. Yeah. Yeah. So in any event, so we have this that we run the the Marching Blues Band. And again, this is this is all music that people, you know, only 12 years removed from the movie mm-hmm. at the time. So everybody knew these songs. And, it, you know, the, the band all had instead of the, <laughs> the, the full <laughs> band uh, regalia with, with uh, the, the feathered hats and, the, and, feathered yep, hat. and yeah. the, the the very militaristic looking uniforms. It was black pants, t-shirts, black sunglasses, black hat. Yep. And so, um, you know, the band wasn't huge, but we had fun doing that. And I think it, at, at the time there were a bunch of people in the band who had never seen this film. Fun doesn't even begin to describe yeah. it. We had a blast. Yeah, we did. We did. And I remember we, we brought in the movie and we screened it before, um, you know, during the summer band camp that we had. And uh, so there's a lot of people that hadn't seen it. So that, you know, that, that burst a whole new uh, viewing experience to a lot of people that were in the band to kind of see what this whole thing was about. You know, what mm-hmm. is this Blues Brothers thing? They knew the character is not really the, the story. So the movie itself has, has legs and still holds up really well. I mean, the, the who's who in this film uh, for people um, in it, it is just, it's something else. Uh, Ackroyd had a lot of connections yeah. at the time and John Landis too, cause he's a big time director. But I mean, when you go, when you go through this, this list of uh, we already mentioned the musicians or some of the musicians, because we, we didn't possibly, we, we didn't get to them all. It's just, it, I mean, it's staggering the amount of, of people that were in this. One of the ones that we missed, who was a main character in the movie, not just as a musician, um, cause he didn't play himself was uh, Cab Calloway. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And um, if you don't know who Cab Calloway is, do yourself a favor, get on YouTube and look this guy up. I mean, this guy was uh, the very epitome of entertainer. Yeah. Um, great, great performer. Uh, whatnot has a, you know what I consider one of the, one of the better parts of the uh, musical moments in the movie uh, when he gets up and, and performs. It's one of my favorite uh, uh, Minnie the Moocher. Yes. Yeah, the old so school big band. Yeah. yeah. Yep. You know what's you know what's funny about that though? I, I was doing a little bit of research and I guess he had released a new version of that for the time, which which I have not heard. Okay. So it was Dan Aykroyd that 
it, it pressured him to play it like it was originally recorded back in the day. He he didn't want to do it in the studio. They had to do two takes on it. Mm-hmm. But finally, he he agreed to it. And, and and again, it's one of those. It it's almost kind of a, a preservation of jazz and blues history. The movie within yeah, itself, yeah. because some of these, the Aretha Franklins and the James Brown, were kind of fading. Yeah, and that out style of the, out, of, out of the front light, and it, it brings them back. Yeah. You're forward right. and people are like, wow, I haven't heard this before. This is fantastic yeah, like, music. Like Sean with his uh, mentioning of, you know, when he saw Full Metal Jacket, exactly what he did. He went back mm-hmm. and started looking for the music. Yeah. That's mm-hmm. what this film did and, yes. and rejuvenated a lot of interest in these, in these you know, these classic artists right. that were on there. Um, and again, I think that's, you know, that's a lot of Dan Aykroyd's influence that he didn't mm-hmm. want this stuff to disappear. Mm-hmm. Um, and you just follow that trail back through everything, everybody that influenced that going all the way back to the Delta Blues. Yeah, a hundred percent. It just it opens one door after another. Can I share a personal story? Yeah, that's we're talking that's what we're bit. here for. We can't, you know, it's difficult to talk about just this as a movie in mm-hmm. itself because we're all very yeah, and it's not just a movie review. It's, no, it's we've got an we investment in right. this. Yeah. So Sean has a bit of a story on how he uh, kind of had his his world opened up. You ever have one of those? Moments where you, your life just changes, or the way that you look at something mm-hmm. changes that. So, right. take you back uh, to kind of my early high school experience. And I was with a good friend of mine, Brandon Hirsch, and we're in the band room in the morning because we kind of hung out there a little oh, bit. Oh, I think I've heard this story. I like So, this, this is one. the 90s. Yeah. And you know, we were listening to David Sanborn and we're listening to Kenny G. <laughs> and we're listening to Kenny G playing the song called Mercy, Mercy, Mercy. Which I'm wasn't sorry. His. <laughs> I'm almost embarrassed to admit this. No, so, no, this is and, this is. Hey, uh, he already brought up cleansing poison. your you soul. So, yeah. so Streeter had this old stereo that was on a, a wheeled platform that we could we could take around, and and so we had uh, we had commandeered this, and we're playing this music. And Doc walks in, Streeter, and he's oh, what is that? And he goes back into his office and gets an old record. I can see him putting his hands on his ears because he would do that often. <laughs> yep, <laughs> he had good reason to. So he comes back with this old Cannonball Adderley album a live one as his turn kenny g lays that thing down and puts the needle on it and i remember it to this day it was if time stopped and listening to how that song was supposed to be played in a live setting and it just all of a sudden it opens up you know you're not listening to kenny g anymore you're listening to charlie parker mm-hmm. and you're listening to john coltrane and you're listening to miles davis and another thing you know about the the marching band streeter's real talent was in the jazz Oh yeah, and and, and Southside always had at you least had a decent a jazz band, fantastic jazz band. But that's where his love was. It wasn't in the marching bands, right? You know that. I think those experiences that we had opened doors for all of us. Yeah, and yeah. we're better people for it. Yeah. Oh, I I couldn't believe uh, I came. Uh, you know, I, I was kind of a snob about it, but uh, you know, I had a a real fixation with Jimi Hendrix mm-hmm. after you know I started discovering that. I've got a Jimi Hendrix tattoo on my back, you know, big fan of Jimi Hendrix. And, uh, you guys told me, you know, the March or not the marching band, the, uh, jazz band was going to be playing crosstown traffic. Oh yeah. And I was like, ah. you know, I just kind of, I was like, Oh, this is going to suck. You know, I went in there. Oh God, did they rip it up? Mm-hmm. God, did they and just like, and you know, I was sitting there watching, you know, them play the other songs and they did well with the other songs and everything. But when they got to crosstown traffic, it's like the whole place just opened up. Mm-hmm. And everybody that was on stage just started punching it through. And it was like, it was like, 
oh my god it was fantastic it was the best version of uh of crosstown track traffic i've ever heard and it was so much fun to play i remember that experience that we had with uh with cannonball adderley from that moment on we all played instruments i i couldn't get home fast enough and play and you know listening to hendrix and and some of the old greats and you want to emulate it or lenny pickett on saturday night live and you know you're listening to what he's doing and try to do some of those things and it's like a new interest. Yeah. Yeah. It was, and you know, we, we owe that to doc and to Dan Aykroyd for being mm-hmm. able to open those kinds of things up for us. And, you know, that was, that was his, he stated that, you know, in some of the interviews that, you know, there are people who have never heard this mm-hmm. and, you know, Dan Aykroyd is one of those people that, you know, you go into his place and he's got all this music that goes back to, you know, all these tapes that don't, don't even have names on them or anything mm-hmm. like that. And he runs a, uh, I don't know if he still do, does it, but he ran a, uh, a radio program. Yeah, the Elwood Blues Hour. Yeah, the mm-hmm. Elwood Blues Hour. And he would just play all this, you know, old blues music. And he would play it. He would announce everything as if he was, you know, Elwood Blues. Mm-hmm. And he'd talk about the history of whatever song that he was about to put on or whatever artist. It was fantastic. Right. I mean, and, and that's the thing, you know, that that this film did I think for a lot of us were just opened up our eyes. I mean, I, I to this day, it's just natural. If if you are a, a a film of or a fan of film or music, how many of us have seen a trailer? Even even if you're not the biggest movie fan, it's not really your thing. You, you've seen on TV, you've seen a movie trailer, and you come up and like, man, I really like that song. Yeah, and you've looked up. You know, these days it's real easy. I can't even imagine what it had been like when we were growing up. Oh, saying, it took effort. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and how much, I mean, the information that's available to us today is just, it's, <laughs> it's, it's at its peak, you know, mm-hmm. for humankind. Right at your fingertips. You know, the only thing, you know, more, I, I think your boy Elon Musk has implanted a chip in a chimpanzee mm-hmm. that can like, um, um, uh, somehow assist with like, uh, thought manipulation or, or, or like, you know, it's, it's really, odd. Shocker. yeah, that's, that's something else that, uh, that doesn't really have anything to do with this, but just the, the, the amount of things that we can find instantly to go ahead. Um, so if you're listening to this and, and really want to open things up for yourself, go ahead and, and, and look, pull up this soundtrack and just look at some of the stuff on there Yeah, because so much of what you're listening to today or what's been listened to 20 years ago is born from stuff that came out you know, and, and even further back than the movie reaches. Mm-hmm. Oh, very far. Yeah. You know, the twenties, the thirties, you know, you get in, you know, you go back to, and, and don't, you know, don't get lost in the fact that the, the, um, don't get turned off by the fact that the technology wasn't the same as it is today. Some of the recordings are rough, but I mean, if, if, if you like anything that, that you're hearing in this movie or on the soundtrack, dig back further. I mean, one of the ones that, that I think that people are, are constantly surprised by is Robert Johnson stuff. Yeah, I was just about to say Robert Johnson. You really yeah. listen to it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because everybody, everybody, you know, Eric Clapton and everybody else will eventually start pointing back to people like Robert Johnson, Lead Belly, people like that. Muddy um, Waters, Muddy Howling yeah. Wolf. Yeah. Uh, people that, you know, you don't even come across anything from them anymore, but, you know, it's there and it's still relevant. If you listen to it, it still moves you. Yeah. Yeah. There was a, there was a, uh, a story and it's on YouTube of, um, during in 1981. So this had been really close to, uh, just after the blues brothers had come out. A lot of the inspiration for a lot of these, uh, specifically British bands came from the black blues. 
mm-hmm. uh, American music. And so, you know, the Rolling Stones unabashedly state that their, oh, yeah. their inspiration were, were those guys and Chuck Berry and, um, you know, black musicians. And in, um, it was somewhere in the late seventies or early, you know, the, the right around 1980 that, um, the stones were on tour and Keith Richards had gotten word that, that Muddy Waters was around, but Muddy Waters was painting ceilings. He was, a he was painting. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, he was like, this is Muddy Waters. He can't be doing this stuff. You know, this guy's a legend. And so in 81, they found, um, they were playing at, uh, I believe it was Soldier Field in Chicago. Um, and uh, Muddy Waters was playing at a local hole-in-the-wall blues joint. And they, they went after the show to catch his set. And they're in there. And he, he knew him because he'd met him before. And he had uh, Mick and Keith come up on stage and they played with him. It's on YouTube. It's fantastic. But it's just, you know, you can just see these guys. Um, the Stones, arguably one of the biggest bands in the world. That are just in awe of this guy. Yeah. You know, that half the population probably had never heard of. Yeah. You know, just because that music had, had disappeared and been absorbed into so many different things. Yeah. But there'd be no, there'd be no modern day. Um, you'd probably not have the Beatles. No. You'd probably not have the Stones. Uh, you wouldn't have Led Zeppelin. Um, and then anything that was influenced that's out today by any of those bands, you, would, you wouldn't you, have that. You wouldn't have rock and roll. Right. I mean, rock and roll came directly out of the blues. Right. And it, it, I, I don't know what else there would have been or what other paths there would have taken, but that was, it would have been basis. markedly different. Yeah. That was the base yeah. of el- almost all the music that has come out since the early 1900s. Right. So, you know, if you see, if you see things and you, you look at, at things through my eyes these days, I've, ev- I think you, you, you say it won't happen, but you eventually become your parents, right? <laughs> you eventually become your parents because at some point you're going to turn on the radio, oh, you're going to turn on MTV, and you're going to go, who the hell is this? That's what is not this? real music. Back back when I was in high school, <laughs> we had real music. Yeah. You know, and, and so one of the things that I do um, uh, notice, you know, when I want to say that stuff or when I do say that stuff is – my biggest complaint is so much of the, of the popular music today sounds alike. Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, that's the, that's the problem with the whole world being wired together. You know, it does. So the yeah. influences kind of bleed together and it's tough for me and not, I'm sure my daughters could argue this, that they can tell the difference of what it is. But you know, one of the things you can do, if, if, if you're feeling that way, go back and listen to stuff you've never listened to before. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Then you're not listening to the same stuff yeah. and you will inevitably pick up stuff that you're like, Oh, that kind of sounds like this. Well, there's a reason it kind of sounds like that. Yeah. Now that, um, I think, I think the first person I read that said something about it was Michael Crichton who was talking about, I think it was in Jurassic park and he was talking about the rise of the internet and said, he's it's the death of humanity because it's been shown for, you know, I don't know how long that, isolated places, you know, evolve into their own way, you know, like, like, you know, Madagascar, the, the, uh, the, what's that Island, the Galapagos islands, things like that. But now everything is all meshed together. Right. And so nothing goes off in its own way. Everything just kind of repeats itself and takes, takes what somebody else had and twists it a little. Or what else it, I think is like kind of lost. That's important. And we'll bring it back to Saturday night live, you know, live, 
back then, they had something called a TV guide, even when we were in high school, <laughs> right? You didn't know what band was playing back in the right. day. They'd have big name, Eddie Van Halen would sit in. You wouldn't know until the show went live. Can you imagine? We were all young. Can you imagine turning on Saturday Night Live? Here comes 1130, and it's the Blues Brothers doing Soul Man. Yeah. I mean, the spontaneity, the creativity, and everybody in society has that shared experience. You come back to work on Monday, and mm-hmm. you're sharing that. Mm-hmm. Is a society. Right. Yeah. Right. That's that's lost with the internet. Yeah, and Andy was talking about how the, the Stones would kick off their tour sometime by just going into some unnamed bar. Under a different name. Under that's a different great. name and lock the doors and you could leave, but you couldn't come back. You know, nobody was allowed in after that, and you'd have the stones all to yourself in a small little bar. Four hundred seat bar. You know, without all the the pyro and big lights, just the bar stage. Yep. And that you know, I've seen the stones eleven times and I I'd I'd give almost every one of those back to just catch without I, all the all the flair and just like kind of the raw setting. For for one of those episodes, I would give your left arm. Yeah. I appreciate that. I'm right handed, so I would. I, I'm thinking about I'm you. Okay, well, I'm thinking thank about you. you. I appreciate it. Um, yeah, it. You know, there and that. You know, it, it kind of sounds like we usually do. We're going off topic, but it's not because yeah. I mean the Blues Brothers, that in and of themselves, are a love letter to the music of the creators, you know, specifically mm-hmm. Dan Aykroyd, mm-hmm. you know, that the, the whole thing isn't about the characters. It's about what influenced and what they, you know, what, what Aykroyd loved to me, right. you know, and what he didn't want to disappear. Speaking of disappear, that's what we're going to do right now. We'll continue our discussion on the Blues Brothers in two weeks on a part two episode. I want to thank Sean and Jason for stopping by and uh, reminiscing high school years, music, and the Blues Brothers. Again, we'll pick up in a couple weeks. Um, I do want to thank you all for uh, listening. Please, uh, if you haven't yet, uh, rate, review, and subscribe. Uh, you can reach the show at on email at thiswontteach at gmail.com. Twitter at this won't teach Instagram at this underscore won't underscore teach underscore you underscore anything. And on Facebook at this won't teach you anything again. Thanks again. And we'll see you next time on this won't teach you anything.